Hello and welcome to a new episode of Building Resilience. Today I'm hosting Lisa Velikangas, Professor of Innovation Management at Technical University of Denmark. Our resilience quest this time is to learn to run before the lions start chasing us and to do so with as little pain as possible. The journey is not predefined and there is no magic wand, so we will talk about rehearsal for change, building cognitive flexibility, scenarios and experimentation, courage and serendipity. Jesters, the resilience paradox, and the ideal zero trauma transformation are also part of the discussion. Unfortunately, due to a poor internet connection, the video was not well recorded. We decided to publish this insightful and refreshing conversation as an audio-only episode. Through this podcast, we are bringing resilience research and practice closer to you. If you enjoy the content, don't forget to like, subscribe, and share your thoughts in the comment section below. Your views and your feedback are extremely important to the development of the podcast. Enjoy our conversation. Hi, Lisa, and welcome to Building Resilience. Thank you, Julia. Pleasure to see you. As uh, I've just told you, I was eager to have this conversation with you because the view you bring on resilience is a very refreshing one in my eyes. How do you define resilience, what it is and maybe what it is not? Sure, thank you. And thanks for um, saying that it is fresh um, to you. I appreciate that. So I've been working on resilience for quite a long time. The um, Our business review article that was published in 2003 was, of course, something that a lot of people read, but then I think people kind of forgot about resilience. And so I find it now coming at the word that everyone is referring to, the concept. We're all trying to figure out what resilience means and what it is. So for me, and it may be, like you say, slightly different from many other interpretations, it is the ability to engage in deep change without the necessity of having to do so. And it's very important that that um, it's sort of forward-looking, proactive. It is not under a crisis kind of resilience. And, and I've called it strategic resilience for that matter, because maybe there is, of course, the kind of resilience which is bouncing back from Uh, a tough situation from a disaster, but but I am more interested in what do you do before, and so um, that's why even though it's difficult, as I'm sure will come clear in this conversation, to develop that kind of capacity, I want to start by saying that it is really the ability to undergo deep change without being sort of under the gun of having to do so. And I have particular reasons for, for saying that, but uh, I leave it at that now. And, and what I want to say, what resilience is not for me again, is that it's not just persisting no matter what, it's not just surviving. It actually implies that there is this renewal, there is this new capacity, capability building, there is some sort of ongoing change. Would you say that you would just define resilience as this foresight, as this change without necessity, or would you add the all three components, the resistant part and the bouncing forward, the adaptability part? Right. So um, foresight obviously is, is important. Um, of course, there are situations when we try and imagine things, we fail or some um, 
sort of externalities may be so threatening to us that we don't even dare to imagine them. And then it's less about our biases and more about having the courage to really think about the future. But I think it's not so much about foresight, resilience, moving forward, than it's about kind of rehearsing for change. And uh, for, for a while, I worked with um, a very large retail company in the um, United States, and we had um, uh, sort of a project that was called The Quest for Resilience. And there was this lovely way of putting it that one of their executives said that, you know, it's too late to learn to run when the tiger is on your tail. And I think a lot of companies operate like that, that they think that, oh, I'm doing all I can. I build scenarios. I have this foresight capability. When I have to change, I can do it. But I think it's not true. And if if one thinks of, of an analogy, it's like we don't expect to be able to run a marathon without training or going to the gym or being in shape or having the sort of muscles. And I think it's the same thing with organizations that they need to have these change muscles. They need to have this capacity that they rehearse for change. So that partially it's ongoing, which means that you can probably see the what is changing in the environment better because you have more sort of touch points uh, with what is happening outside. But also you are much better prepared to then continue the changing in some direction or another if you are rehearsing it already. And that's why I think that that it's not so much about building sort of an um, intellectual capacity, even though that obviously is important also, although we know that, for instance, scenario planning had its challenges in then connecting the scenarios to strategy making. And I think that is part of the problem. It's like, how do you actually build the capacity to rehearse changing? A lot of people talk about experimentation. I might talk about uh, sort of a portfolio of experimentation, which is not just that do you have sort of 10 tries, one of which will work, but those 10 tries, those 10 experiments are important because they build resilience capability. They build this capacity to sort of uh, learn about changing, learn about particular context and learn how the world reacts to that. So, so that's how I look at it. It's like it's better to learn to run before the tiger chases you. But going with the tiger parallel, there you know the enemy if you want. But here with the constant changes and the constant disruption that we are all experimenting, is it even attainable to have this kind of foresight? Yeah. Well, I mean, if you can run, then probably no matter what's behind you, <laughs> you still run. Of course, you know, you may not be able to outrun the tiger, but that's, that's sort of another other discussion perhaps. Uh, but I, I think the idea is not so much that we have targeted ways of dealing with X, Y, Z, because we seem to be rather poor in predicting, uh, if not the actual event, at least its timing. And therefore, I kind of go back to this thing that the best we can do is to build this rehearsal, build the capacity for an ongoing change so that by the time we realize that this is happening, we already have a lot of learnings in that area. We already perhaps have some options. We have built some stepping stones. We have some capabilities. We have some networks of people who may be connected to this phenomenon. And so there is no um, uh, kind of 
silver bullet or a perfect solution to this because I mean the, it wouldn't be resilience and it wouldn't be strategic resilience if there would be X, Y, Z we could do or A, B, C we could do and then be ready. I think the reason why it is resilience uh, is precisely because the world always surprises us. And so then it sort of depends how we relate to this surprise. So how we been thinking about uh, how to see better and see the surprises earlier? Have we been rehearsing um, on how to respond to surprises? How we turn threats into opportunities? All these kinds of things are capabilities that organizations can sort of think about. I mean, there can be kind of uh, cognitive flexibility. So is my mind open? Do I look beyond my narrow marketplace? Am I challenging myself with things that I really disagree with? Uh, do I have a portfolio of experiments that I can build on very quickly that I can sort of learn from? And do I have some sort of way of um, allocating or perhaps attracting resources behind sort of emergent um, uh, ventures or, or kind of uh, experiments that uh, need a lot more learning? And how quickly can I do this? I mean, moving from the sort of noticing something to having resources behind it, does it take me and my organization five years, which was, by the way, the average that executives mentioned before before COVID uh, crisis? Um, or can I do it continuously every month, every week, uh, and certainly faster than my competitor? And I think that is the challenge. We have to kind of constantly go through this noticing experimenting, learning, resourcing, and then uh, moving. And I could call it the renewal circle, for instance. Do you have any example of a company that does this better or good? Yeah, so um, the the danger of company examples always is that the moment you kind of give them as, as great examples, they tend to fall. But, I mean, I would more look at sort of acts inside companies that build this resilience. So, you know, um, you might have something as um, surprising as a gesture. You know, uh, it is interesting that throughout human history, there is always have been uh, court gestures, people who were kind of clowns, but they were very important because they were confidant to the power, to the person to the um, uh, monarch or the, the emperor. And uh, they seem to have existed throughout the world, everywhere, at all times. So do we have someone in our organization who is a bit of a corporate jester, who challenges our thinking, who makes us laugh our our silliness or, or makes us laugh at things that we put on table um, what a good word is platform. You know, when people say platform, most people in the room, I would admit, do not know what it means. And if you ask, people kind of realize that, oh my, you know, we don't actually know what we mean by this platform, for instance. Uh, so do we have a person who under the sort of um, cover of humor has this privilege and this kind of mandate of challenging us to make us laugh of ourselves and our absurdity without having to admit to our faults or errors or mistakes. So that might be one way of bringing in cognitive resilience. And British um, 
British Airways actually had one. Uh, his name was Paul Birch a long time ago, and he was a corporate jester. And I know there exists others. Google had one for a while and, and so on. So that might be one example of, of a resilient action within the cognitive flexibility. In terms of um, experimentation, so what I always recommend is really trying to collect all the innovative experiments that there are in the organization in one place. You know, they can be like Emerson Electric did, they can be in one room where you have them on different walls. So you can see who is experimenting on what, at what phase, you know, ideas green, experiments yellow, learnings red or whatever. And then you go to the room again in six months, you can see if the colors have changed. It can be on the internet, of course, or intranet. It can easily be some, some other technology. But the point is that it's good to understand what all is being experimented on so that we can learn from it, we can exchange learnings, we can kind of accumulate and also see if we are very lean on the experiment. So in terms of resourcing, an ex example of there that I like quite a bit is to think about resourcing, not just kind of budgeting and capital allocation or human uh, resources uh, as in particular projects, but thinking about new ways of resourcing. Can we attract resources, kind of, you know, open innovation is something that people have talked, uh, talked about for a long time. Uh, Shell had this um, uh, initiative called Game Changer for more than 20 years that was open for radical ideas from anywhere in the organization, but also from outside. And the one criteria, uh, to come and talk about your idea to the game changer team, which was just a bunch of you know senior people, not executives, but experienced shell people, was that your own department had rejected the idea. And that's the first time ever I've heard of this sort of um, uh, criteria that it first had to be rejected by the organization because obviously game changer doesn't want to compete with the department, but also it's sort of, suggest that maybe this idea is somewhat radical. And so uh, having an address like that to go talk to, to get some resources, maybe just $15,000, maybe just suggestion who to talk to, maybe a encouragement to build a, a team around it, is something that might make an organization more resilient. Or a final example there, since I'm currently located uh, in Finland, um, hiding here in the countryside, um, we have a lot of gaming companies. And I've been thinking about uh, gaming technologies. Uh, they're interesting from a particular perspective to me. There are millions of people who play these games together in a day, in a month, uh, Fortnite, uh, World of Witchcraft, these sort of uh, games. So this is a technology that allows millions of people to collaborate. And I think we, we can think about how to use that technology. And some organizations like California's Institute, California's Institute for the Future has actually built um, games. Um, one of them was a while ago called Superstruct, where people participated uh, from all over the world, thinking about how to uh, extend humanity's time on Earth because we were facing seven super threats. And so beyond kind of these exciting narratives, or perhaps how to uh, reduce, eliminate poverty, which was with, with Rockefeller Institute. Um, 
So they use the kind of gaming ideas to attract resources to solve problems that um, uh, are important to humanity. Kaggle, which was a website uh, and an organization that Google later bought, um, had uh, half a million data scientists ready to compete in solving uh, most complex data science problems presented to them. So I understand that this was something to be proud of in Silicon Valley. You know, what is your Kaggle ranking rather than where is your computer science degree from? So that's also a way to kind of invite organizations to ask, how can I make my most complex problems attractive to some of the world's smartest data scientists to, ta to uh, tackle? And so that's something that kind of expands our thinking about resourcing in a in the direction that, that might bring some sort of resilience to uh, that third step from cognitive strategic to resources. And uh, Lisa, tell me a bit, you talk about zero trauma transformation. Everything that I have experienced so far in transformation, whichever organization I worked with, it was anything but non-traumatic. It usually is very traumatic. From restructuring people, to changing processes, changing systems. It's hard to change, it's hard to adapt. Projects are always um, uh, not on time. There are resources that need to be managed and there are never enough of them. There's not enough time. Priorities are overlapping. How can we see the zero trauma transformation, which seems like the utopic kind of transformation? Yeah, yeah, I mean, obviously um, that was a, an ambition, that was a target rather than a reality. I mean, this um, article in our business review that launched the concept of zero trauma transition or renewal um, kind of uh, stated that we look around and that deep change seems to only happen under crisis, uh, meaning that there is a lot of financial loss, there's a lot of human suffering. Um, and so we thought there has to be a better way uh, at least we should have a better or higher ambition. And that's where the zero trauma came from. And uh, um, uh, that's also related to sort of notion of leadership in a sense that if we think that uh, to drive really deep change in an organization is by creating sort of a sense of urgency, uh, you know, you can only do that so many times a month or year uh, until people don't, think that's very credible anymore. And they also get very tired if you have to sort of act under uh, uh, urgency or burning platform or whatever all the time. And so uh, crisis, I think, is a very bad um, uh, boss because it creates its own dynamic of change. This is not a dynamic that is in any way desirable, that cannot be led often. Uh, there's no time for learning, experimenting. You have to take big risks. It also creates a situation where people either leave because, you know, clearly this is a situation that the organization is in trouble or they resort very easily to their sort of most basic routine behaviors. And neither of those you really want if you want to renew an organization. So there are a lot of reasons why this type of leading through crisis uh, is a very, very bad idea. And so what is the alternative? And this is, uh, of course, uh, the challenge, but the alternative that um, 
uh, we were proposing in that article with Gary Hamill was that um, we think about how to develop this cognitive flexibility to notice things earlier, to notice different things, um, to challenge ourselves. And the gesture is one idea that I've come up with since, but there are many others, of course. Um, developing a portfolio of experimentation to have strategy options, something that many scholars um, have suggested for quite some time because that allows us more uh, kind of uh, base on which to then quickly build things. And resourcing, finally, is obviously something that is always an issue. And you can do this, of course, better or worse. Uh, you can find some your own particular idiosyncratic or fitting ways of building flexibility and, and options. But I think that is sort of the direction where we ought to be going. Uh, and uh, if we all experience deep change only through trauma, then I think we have to question ourselves is that what is wrong with uh, management practice and, and, and the way we kind of teach this? And there, of course, has been critiques of, of that as well, that maybe it is not um, that our practice and our best practice is not really such that it is very renewal-oriented. It is rather, rather perhaps control-oriented, which may create an entirely different dynamic uh, from the kind of constant uh, renewal, trying, uh, learning, moving forward. And of course, I know other people in, in this podcast series have talked about what does it take to build a credible experimentation, trial and error culture? And I think that remains a valid goal, but also a very challenging one. Yeah, one that everyone definitely uh, talks about. You were talking about uh, being tired, right? And uh, this led me because I was thinking you were talking about the paradox, the resilience paradox, right? And the better we get at being resilient, the less we are willing to invest in resilience. Is it, due, is it because we get tired? Is it because we get bored of doing the same thing and investing in the same thing? Or is it arrogance? Is it complacency? What's, why does this happen? <laughs> yes. Um, I mean, there are all the usual suspects, right? So when things go well, we tend to be very happy and continue and be complacent. I remember talking to a CEO of a very successful uh, global company, and he said, you know, one of our challenges in a company like ours is how do we uh, maintain our drive because we are so successful? So in this um, uh, large global um, retailer based in the U.S., we actually, uh, together with the with the people working there who really were in the forefront of this, they built something called Resilience Deficiency Syndrome Hospital, short for Resilience Hospital. And the igniting question was, you know, there have been um, retailers who have been just as successful as us, but now they have disappeared or they are in trouble. What makes us different? And the Resilience Hospital was sort of a place where you would put uh, names of these companies in little beds, uh, have an X-ray analysis of what resilience deficiency syndrome they were suffering. And then a lot of employees, the whole board, the executive team came with white um, doctor's coats and, and started looking and had, had a conversation afterwards, like, how are we different? All these guys were just as good as we were. 
and yet they are now in the resilience hospital. So there is this kind of need to really shake people thinking about that um, uh, because once when when you're very successful, we know from a lot of research in myopia that it's very easy to kind of, as Jim March from Stanford used to say, improve yourself into obsolescence. You know, we learn more of what we already know very well, whereas we kind of are hesitant in stepping into areas that are far outside our competencies, so-called comfort zone, etc. So there has to be some good thinking as to how to build this type of um, kind of shaking up. Uh, and that's why the gesture might be one way, but, uh, you know, resilience hospital is perhaps something that not all companies can, can do. It's got sort of fitting in a particular culture of a retailer. But what is our way as an organization to sort of um, remind us that Success is success for the moment, etc. I mean, all these very well-known things, but also get it to our bones, not just sort of repeat it in PowerPoints, but really kind of engage people in reflecting um, on, on this. And perhaps even do some sort of learning journeys really outside um, from our organization, from, from our markets, so that they can expose themselves to something that perhaps is new to these particular people. Uh, and so there are many different ways because obviously this is a challenge. I mean, some people are more open to new things than others. Maybe those are the ones who can lead the way and, and others follow. Would this also require a sort of a long tenure? Different perspectives. Uh, some people think that bringing a new executive will suddenly refresh things. There's some new thinking, that new approach. But at the same time, and I've written a paper on this with uh, by my colleagues, uh, if you have sort of an innovation um, uh, um, group or team or, or venturing unit and you kind of close it every third year and then you perhaps open up something else, those ideas will never really have time to truly mature, even though today, of course, everything is accelerated and you do things in a kind of more lean manner. But um, but I think there there is somewhat of a consensus that really short tenures um, uh, are not good for really building the kind of capabilities that are deep, that require commitment over time. I mean, going back to the CEO of a very successful global company, he, he used to say he was there for a... Uh, Ten years, something like that. That we'll work on this until we master it. And it was obvious for everybody that this was not the flavor of the month or the year. You know, this was something that he was committed to, and the organization was committed to. He had a rather strong leadership style. But, but um, yeah. So, so I think we need to find ways of dealing with um, kind of changing tenures and, and shortening timeframes and, and, and maybe some of these approaches that we are coping from software uh, industry are kind of a response to that, but uh, they still uh, re leave questions about how to develop very deep capabilities. We are talking about uh, strategic resilience and how should we link business strategy to resilience? Okay, good. Uh, so I've seen many strategies um, that kind of indeed to say we'll it's a number we grow by ten percent or we are um, we're going to be uh, even more cost efficient. 
which sort of leaves this question of what is actually um, the hypothesis of our success unanswered. And um, uh, the, the link between strategy and resilience, I think, comes through innovation, that there has to be something that is truly important, that is novel, that is um, highly distinctive, that is valued by the market, of course, that also allows us the ability to kind of build our capabilities on that and then go through this this um, um, resilience or renewal cycle that I was describing. And I think the um, sort of as a, as a practical matter, uh, I had a lot of fun with a couple of my colleagues writing um, a book that was called Strategic Innovation, where we thought about how to learn from things yet to happen. And, and so that sounds kind of crazy, but um, learning from things yet to happen uh, sort of implies that you have to be out there in the vanguard looking at what is happening in the outskirts of the market, on the edges, who are the sort of uh, crazy experimenters, where are the pioneers, where are the, people, the companies, the startups perhaps, or the thinkers for that matter, who make you say, wow, you know, really grab your emotions, kind of like, I really get excited about that, or I really am afraid of that. That that really scares the daylight out of me because if that happens, you know, I'm out of business or I'm obsolete. And I think looking for this kind of wow, and we know from psychology that that relating through these emotions is actually a very good um, sign that something important is happening out there. And the problem often is that in the strategy meetings. Um, we tend to say that, okay, prove it. You know, why would I be interested in this particular um, uh, outskirts, vanguard, uh, outlier example? Uh, and, and so if we wait until we really have the data to prove something, it's kind of too late. Because the whole idea of learning from things yet to happen is that you have to be learning when the other is still are not uh, there. It's not the dominant story. It's not the case example everybody is sharing. Uh, so we are, if that's the case, we are far behind the sort of curve. But beyond the sort of wow, we said, so what? And it was not just that you go and copy it. That would be not good. You, you kind of have to think about if that thing, if that outlier example succeeds, what does it mean for us? Or what can we learn from this outlier example? And kind of put a strategic lens on it, try and think about what does it mean for our, um, uh, whether it's you know channels or production or um, our customers' value proposition, whatever it might be. And then through that, think about how to amplify it. And this is called uh, oomph, you know, how to get scale. So you don't just kind of end up experimenting in small scale, but um, you think about how can I um, involve others for network effects? How can I, who can I partner with? What can I do in terms of getting, say, these data scientists from a place like Gaggle uh, excited about this? And so I think that is the link between strategy and resilience, that we have to be sort of uh, open to look at where are the wows and what do they mean to us, the so what, and then how to amplify the impact 
for ourselves, but also for the marketplace. I really love this call uh, to uh, reflection, to learning from others, to a bit of uh, inner time. I think that's missing with trying to get so lean in what we do and trying to get so efficient and not miss any kind of uh, resources or any kind of corner. We forgot to sit and just think about things, reflect on them. Yes, I mean, it's um, it's easy to say that we need to be reflective, and, and I suppose all of us are reflective in our own way. I think you are referring to, to this one um, article at the um, Academy of Management Perspectives, where my co-author, Sirka Arunta, and I wrote about um, uh, time and, and collaboration, and we were sort of thinking about, given the role advanced technologies have on our lives, what does that mean in terms of our inner time, our capacity to take time to reflect? And what does it mean in terms of our capacity to reflect with others, uh, that social time? Uh, and we were kind of challenged to write a doomsday paper. So, so it has a little bit of that flavor to it, but we are quite serious about it, that if we as a sort of organizations or society or humankind lose our ability to reflect, look inward and reflect with others, have meaningful social collaborative time, we cannot address some of these big challenges facing us that um, cannot be solved by sort of uh, one person or one organization or by any kind of a very quick thing that can be sort of taken off the shelf. So so I guess whether that relates to resilience, but I think it does relate to sort of our common resilience as, as people that we really need to think about what are the um, assumptions that these technologies that are kind of dominating our lives and, and in this time of remote working, it's probably particularly acute. Um, what are their temporal assumptions? What do they assume in terms of, you know, can I determine how much time I spend on um, particular activities? There's some studies by Judy Wachmann, which sort of tell uh, quite uh, forcefully that, for instance, online calendaring tends to have an impact on people's work life, that everything has to happen in half an hour um, uh, increments. So that is not a lot of time for any sort of social time, any kind of reflection. You have to be very efficient <laughs> to be able to do that. Uh, or if we kind of put our calendars out there and we just have to show that they are all full because that makes us important to the organization, what does it do to our ability to think about what is really the important thing to pay attention to? And I think that is kind of the uh, perhaps bottom line of, of strategic resilience is that, that uh, what the world sort of serves us is not necessarily the kind of things we should be thinking about, but we really need to consider that what are the issues when I look broadly, when I go outside my narrow area of specialization, when I go beyond my geography that I ought to be paying attention to. And I gave a TEDx talk late, uh, recently at the Technical University of Denmark, and I sort of thought of three. One of them is the urgency of now. And that relates to this thing about, you know, uh, how can we develop vaccines and, and today how can we uh, distribute them 
when usually the time required is 10 years and, and many more for the production capacity. So how do we accelerate this, which is something that we are going to be facing more and more? Digitalization, the introduction of advanced technologies into our lives and our organizations beyond sort of being able to make a Zoom call, which is, which is just a scratch on the surface. Uh, what does that mean in terms of the way we innovate together, for instance? And then finally, the rise of China. And I think those three already are such that I would think most organizations today need to be thinking about rather deeply if they want to be resilient going forward. And these may not be things that come in your inbox or in, in uh, uh, you know, Slack conversation. They may or may not, but, but they require truly inner and social time and collaborative capability because we cannot uh, manage uh, on our own. We need much, much uh, larger architectures of, of collaboration to tackle some of these. How can we practically measure resilience and how can someone in an organization really know how much they can handle before any kind of grand challenge happens? Yeah, so the measurement uh, question is always uh, of great interest to, to um, sort of managers. And, and I have kind of a mixed feelings about it because I would submit that um, measuring and quantifying things may actually be very anti-resilient because it instantly directs our attention to the things that are being measured. You get what you measure is the old uh, adage. Uh, and so that kind of develops these soft areas that are likely the, to be the ones that uh, we are not paying attention to. And so I think it's partially um, an easy way out uh, and, and I think the, the challenge is that, that um, uh, all the important things are much harder to quantify than the less important things. And that is how kind of resilience particularly is that, that um, of course, we might make an effort in thinking about how much new things have we brought into our strategy discussion, what new capabilities we have developed, how we... Um, uh, actually uh, refreshed our strategy, is it truly strategic? But again, those things are not really measures. They are more like contributions or, or kind of uh, assessments, if you will. And I would rather go with this kind of uh, assessments and maybe conversation around these issues than sort of uh, doing a um, set of metrics and putting numbers or checking boxes, because I, I think that's highly anti-resilient in itself. And there is some support in the sociology of quantification that, that that actually does affect our organizations in ways that may not be very desirable in, in this regard. And whether we know um, if we are resilient or not, it's a bit like, you know, this famous term slack. You only know if you have slack afterwards. Uh, but uh, again, it may be so in the end, but I think uh, it does not lift the um, responsibility on, on us to try be as resilient as possible. Because, I mean, there are some very concrete things you can do. And I hope I, I managed to give some examples under the cognitive and strategic and resourcing areas. And so we can think about, do we have anything in place that helps us be cognitively open-minded? Or uh, how broad is our 
our portfolio of experimentation or are we resourcing um, our um, thinking so that it is innovative, that we are tapping sources outside or using some new technologies perhaps for that particular end like game platforms. So all those give us some indication. But of course, in the end, um, we don't know. And it's also true that everything fails eventually. And, uh, you know, all maybe there are some soya companies in Japan that are thousand years old, in addition to some religious organizations. But, but mostly companies fail. And while I think it's a good and, and sort of a, a necessity or almost like an um, imperative of senior management and all of us in organizations and in, as members of society to try and develop a capacity for change at the low cost without trauma. I think we also have to admit that that everything fails eventually. And it may be a good thing, too, because, you know, not um, not surviving will give room for something new eventually. Uh, and, you know, there's some um, some suggestion that, that it actually makes sense for, for organizations to pursue particular paths, try and learn as much as they can from that, um, and then sort of spread the knowledge in the marketplace for others to pick up and, and combine, which is a slightly different sort of um, philosophical view on this. But uh, but I think these things coexist in some way. Any words of wisdom for leaders out there who are trying to act before any kind of adversity is happening? Yeah, I think one thing that we haven't talked about that I often talk about when I talk about resilience is courage. Because um, to be truly resilient, to think differently, to, to sort of challenge uh, the dominant uh, thinking uh, or to do an experiment that is very radical uh, or even use kind of resourcing that is unusual, it requires courage. And I think one way to, to start a conversation around this is to... Um, Ask members of your team, for instance, uh, and these are questions posed by Monica Warline in one of her um, publications, is tell me about a situation where someone in your organization showed resili- uh, sorry, showed courage. And then what happened then? And then a very important question, why was that courage? Because um, that would suggest something about what courage, first of all, do people exhibit courage? which I think is necessary for organizations to be strategically resilient. And then it would suggest something about what the nature of that courage is. Because if you have an organization that is very very um, anarchic, being an anarchist is not very courageous. Then it would be courageous to impose rules. Uh, but if you have an organization, and this is perhaps more like the situation with larger companies, which is very uh, sort of orderly, has a lot of rules, then breaking couple of rules that don't make any sense every day is courageous and it's almost like something that is required from you. This is something that uh, James Scott, who is an anthropologist uh, at Yale, I think, he was sort of suggesting that break two silly rules every day. And I think that also is something that is almost like a citizen responsibility. It's like if we follow these rules, that make our lives difficult or don't make any sense or even are counterproductive, we are enforcing them, we are strengthening them. But if we break them, we can sort of 
weaken them maybe a little bit and at least uh, start a conversation as to why these sort of rules or perhaps routines exist. So I would have a conversation around courage in addition to thinking about what is it that we do in our organization that brings cognitive, strategic and resourcing resilience. One last question, Lisa. Luck. How does luck play into resilience? <laughs> well, you can say that luck plays uh, into everything in life. And, and some people use the word serendipity, which uh, is, is a one fantastic, lovely, lovely word. Uh, of course, uh, you have to be lucky too. But then you also have to be uh, in a position to take advantage of this luck. So um, there is a beautiful book, uh, Robert Merton, the, the late sociologist, was uh, one of the authors, and Elinor Barber, uh, Adventures of uh, Serendipity, I believe it was called. And so they describe in that book the origins of the word serendipity, uh, which is well worth reading. But what I took out of that was that serendipity is something that is actually the famous free lunch that the economists doesn't exist because serendipity means that you find something you weren't looking for. Now that is a free lunch, but it does require that you're looking for something. So you have to be poised in that sense. And I think that is where the luck and serendipity come into our lives, the organizational lives, that, that we have to be poised. We have to be looking for something. We have to be sort of actively observing but what we find may be quite different from what we were looking for initially. And I think that is where uh, the best of serendipity can serve us. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Anything that maybe I didn't ask you and you wanted to talk about? Um, no, I think we've had a very, very nice conversation and I really appreciate your questions and, and uh, this chance to talk with you. Um, I am. I perhaps would like to make an invite or invitation to practitioner and scholarly community in terms of what are the sort of questions that we should answer in resilience today, because there has now been quite a lot of research on resilience and and the amount of uh, research publications and perhaps also best practices increasing. And I think it would be very interesting to to have a conversation around the sort of questions that we should be tackling today. So that's an open invitation and, and I look forward to hearing from you, Julia, uh, and anybody else who's interested in this conversation. Thank you. Perfect, perfect. I'll make sure to uh, have it in the description of the video and definitely when we post it on LinkedIn and anywhere else so people uh, know that this is an invitation to, uh, to discussion. Thank you so much, Lisa, for today. Thank you for your time and thank you for your insights. It was a pleasure, Julia. Bye-bye now.